Good morning. Today we're going to be continuing our our journey through the book of Judges. Uh, We'll be in Judges 2, uh, beginning in verse 16 and uh, ending at the end of the chapter. So I'll invite you to turn there. Um, While you're flipping there, if you haven't had a chance to meet, I'm Bailey Wagner, the youth guy around here. Uh, We drink coffee in this pavilion down here after the service. We would love to meet you if I haven't had a chance to. And the coffee's really good, I would say. So if anything, come for that. Well, again, we'll be in Judges 2, 16 through 23. So I invite you to stand with me as we read God's word together. So listen, this is God's word. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judge, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them. Whether they, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them in, into the hand of Joshua. You can have a seat. Let's pray together. Our God, we come to you this morning um, in a variety of places. Some of us come to you after a restful weekend, um, enjoying time with friends and family. Others of you, others of us come to you this morning um, wrestling children to get in minivans or just looking down the barrel of another long week. And we're asking, how are we gonna do it? Or how are we even gonna, how are we even gonna get through this service? Um, Lord, wherever we're at, we know that you are faithful to meet us where we're at. So we would ask that you would open our eyes, that you would uh, tune our hearts to what you'd have to say out of Judges this morning. And we ask that in this, that we would see Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, as more beautiful and lovely and true. And we ask this in his name. Amen. So are, are y'all puzzle people? Are people, are anyone here who like enjoys puzzles? Okay, got a few people. I'm glad that's a thing because I feel like with smartphones, puzzles will be out the door before too long. But if you put together a puzzle, like if you're like me, I do puzzles on beach trips on rainy days because there's always a puzzle and it never has all the pieces. And I find that out at the end, which is my fault at this point. But you know, when you take a puzzle and you put it together, the process is the same, kind of no matter what the puzzle is, you take the, you open the box, you dump the pieces on the table and it's pretty daunting and you're like, oh, this is, this is going to be some work. But then you take the box and you kind of prop it up in the corner of the table and you see the picture, and the picture helps you start to make sense of the pieces that are in a pile in front of you, right? Like the picture 
is a key kind of to what's going to happen, right? So if the puzzle is, it's, if it's Winnie the Pooh and you have a yellow piece, you're like, that's probably the bear, right? We do the same thing uh, with Ikea furniture. I think this is one more relevant to all of us. We think we're going to use the directions and we think the directions will be helpful and like they're just not. Um, so, right, like you, you put your Ikea furniture together, you start working through the directions and at a certain point, the directions don't make sense. So you flip to the back and you see the drawing of the finished piece and it helps you make sense of like the pieces that are left in the box. Okay, so why do I bring that up? It's because this passage today, uh, Judges 2, 16 through 22, or 23, and really all of Judges chapter 2, kind of acts like the big picture or the key to help us understand the rest of the book of Judges. So when we start getting deeper and deeper into the book of Judges and looking at story after story, we might be asking ourselves, what is God doing here? How do we make sense of this? What I'm trying to submit to you is that what we just read is kind of the picture on the front of the puzzle box for the book of Judges, right? And this is the big picture. This is kind of where we're going today. It's the big picture of Judges and of our passage, really, is that God is faithful to his people even when they don't deserve it, right? And because of that, we should live in light of that truth, that God's faithful to his people. So this morning, um, I just want to break down three ways in our passage today we see God's faithfulness. So if you, uh, if you have your bulletin, page five has the notes on it. So if you're a note taker or doodler, that page is for you. But here's our outline. We're going to see that God is faithful in our present situation. God is faithful to destroy our idols. And last, we're going to see God is faithful despite our disobedience. So let's dive right in. God is faithful regardless of the situation we find ourselves in. And he's especially faithful if that's a situation that we've gotten ourselves into, if it's a situation that us and our sin have created for ourselves. Um, look at verse 16 with me. It says this, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Right? God raised up judges to save Israel from their plunderers and the people who were oppressing them. But the whole reason Israel was being plundered and being oppressed in the first place was because of their disobedience. They did what was evil in God's sight. They disobeyed God. So God gave them over to their plunderers. Israel's situation that they're in, is, it's really a direct result of their sin. Like in this real sense, we could even say they're getting what they deserve. But God hears their groaning. He responds to them. If you look at verse 18, we're going to split this verse in half, and we're going to look at the last half right now. It says that the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning, by Israel's groaning, because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. So even though Israel got themselves in this situation, even though the plundering was really a result of their sin, they were groaning, and God heard them. And this word groaning, if if you're familiar with the Old Testament, it might, it might tickle your ears a little bit because it, it also appears in Exodus chapter 2 um, where it says that God heard Israel's groaning in their slavery in Egypt and that he remembered his covenant with their fathers, with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, right? Israel here in Judges, they're groaning, and it's not because of slavery, but it's because of the misery they find themselves in as a result of their sin, and God is faithful to rescue them. 
In the same way, he was faithful to rescue Israel hundreds of years earlier as they were in Egypt. That God is faithful to his people. He's faithful to his covenant. He's not turning away from his people. He hears them in their groaning and in their cries for help. But I think if we're honest, um, we're much more comfortable to see God's faithfulness in Exodus as God's people are in slavery than we really are to see it here in Judges. And that's because I think that we don't feel like we can look to God for help when we're facing the consequences of our own sin. When we feel like the situation is our fault, we really struggle to remember God's faithfulness. Right? We want to know that we can fix our own mess. Right? We don't want God to intervene. Or if we realize we can't fix it, if there's nothing that can be done about these circumstances, we just want to wallow in our misery. Right? We want to act like it's all our fault. No one needs to help us. We can't complain. Um, an example in my life is... You probably don't know this about me, but you could look at me and make this assumption. I love Cookout, the fast food restaurant, right? <laughs> Trays, burgers, shakes, sign me up, right? Um, I've spent like most of my life, I'm a North Carolinian. I grew up near a cookout that was next to a putt-putt, which meant my whole life was like spin at cookout. In college, I ate a lot of cookout. When we moved to Charlotte, we rented a house sight unseen in East Charlotte, and driving in, we passed a cookout, and I said, this was a good decision. It was, I was so happy about it. But now that I'm getting older, right, I can't eat cookout like I'm a 20-year-old college student anymore. If I eat cookout at midnight like I used to, I will feel terrible the whole next day, right, because cookout makes me feel terrible. And so when I do this, because I will still do this, right, I'm, I'm not ashamed to admit it, I will, like, not tell anyone how bad I feel the next day because I'm like, no one should feel bad for me. I ate a double bacon cheeseburger with a quesadilla ranch wrap fries and a cheer wine at 12.30 last night, right? <laughs> Bad idea. And I feel like no one should feel sorry for me. No one should hear my complaining because this is my own fault. This is my fault. And I think this is how we feel with our sin from time to time. We think that God doesn't care when we deal with the consequences of our sin and when we do that, we forget his faithfulness. But what we see in our passage is that God is faithful to his people even when they're experiencing the consequences of their sin. His mercies are unconditional. He doesn't turn away from us when we sin. Instead, he moves towards us. And really, I think God's faithfulness to sinners is seen most in Jesus, right? In, in Mark 2, we see Jesus saying, that those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And he says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. But Jesus didn't come to earth. He didn't live per a perfect life. He didn't die a death we deserve because we have it all together. Jesus came to earth because we're sinners. He came because we're under the curse of sin, because we sin ourselves, because we experience the consequences of our sin. And it's in him we see God's faithfulness fully to broken and sinful people. So because God is faithful regardless of our situation, we can cry out to him no matter what our distress is, even if that's something that we've created ourselves. Here's some examples to kind of get the wheels turning. This first one is really extreme, so just buckle up. Uh, it'll get the wheels turning, though. Let's say you embezzle money from your company and you get arrested, tried, 
found guilty, and you go to prison, right? Knowing God's faithfulness to you in this situation means you can cry out to him from your prison cell, right? You can call upon God's name in repentance. You can ask him for peace, for wisdom, for comfort, for mercy, right? And you can cry out to him even though you're the one who got yourself in this situation, right? God is faithful regardless of where you are or what you've done. All right, less extreme. Um, Say you've had a long day at work, long day with the kids. You come home or your spouse comes home and you snap at them. You snap at your spouse, you snap at your kids. You're unkind, right? Tension fills the household. What does it look like to understand God's faithfulness in this situation? It might look like asking God for patience and gentleness and healing of just the relational stress you've put on your family even though this is something that you've done. I think that might be what that looks like. So no matter where you are, no matter what you've done, your present situation doesn't dictate God's faithfulness to you. God is faithful regardless of what you do. So in Judges, we see God's faithfulness in Israel's situation. They're being oppressed as a result of their sin, but God is faithful to hear their groaning and respond by sending them a judge. But what we also see in this is God's faithfulness, and we see that God's faithful to destroy our idols. That's our next point. So God wants us all to himself, and he's committed, he's very committed to making sure that happens. And where we see this is how God raises up judges to defeat the enemies of his people. So go back to verse 18, look at the first part with me. Um, It says, whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of their judge. So we've touched on this a little bit before, but it's it's good review. Um, God commanded his people to wipe out all the people that occupied the promised land, and God's people disobeyed. They did not do that. And one of the reasons God was commanding this one of the reasons God commanded that he wanted his people to wipe out the inhabitants of the land is because these people were pagan. They worshiped Baal. Um, and I think that today we think that we're happy with like the church, state, like religion, government, like being separate. Like those are the waters we swim in. Here, that's not the case. The culture, the society, everything was purely pagan. There's no way to get around it. And so what I want you to do just as we ponder that, is to think back to the Ten Commandments with me. When God delivers his law, he first tells Israel, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he gives the first commandment, which is, you shall have no other gods before me. And the first thing God does when giving his law is to remind them who he is, who they are in relation to him, And then he says, I don't want you worshiping anyone else, right? God in no way is happy that we would worship idols, that we would have false gods that we put our hope in. So because Israel didn't drive out the inhabitants of the land, we see in verse 17 that they didn't listen to their judges. And it says that they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. And they soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they didn't do so. Israel's affections, Israel's desires, their hope, their trust was not in Yahweh, 
the living and true God, but it was in Baal. They were turning to false gods. They were bowing down to false gods rather than the living and true God. So in the same way, you and I both deal with our own idols. Our idols aren't Baal, right? We don't, I could be mistaken. You may have a Baal in your house, but I doubt it. But our idols are the things that we turn to other than God that we think will satisfy us. They're the things we look to to give us comfort and give us security and belonging and hope. Um, And they're the things we look to to give us those things rather than trusting that God, the living and true God, will provide all that we need. And that's exactly what Israel's doing here, worshiping Baal. But God, um, in the same way that we see in the passage, he loves driving out our idols. And he does this because he's faithful to us. He's called us to be his people, right? And he won't stop at anything to have us all to himself, right? He won't just let us run off, but he's faithful to come after us, to destroy our idols, to bring us back. And in that, we see God's faithfulness because he doesn't let us go astray, but he defeats our idols. Um, Before I moved to Charlotte, a lot of you have heard a spiel like this before, but I I did campus ministry at the University of Florida. Um, Hot place down there. Don't recommend living in Gainesville. Um, Unless you like seeing gators, then it's a a great place if that's your thing. Um, The ministry I was in, University of Florida is like, we think of Tim Tebow, which is still very true, but it's like a, it's a really like engineering heavy, like high achieving kind of school. Um, and much of the ministry that I did for two years was walking with like freshmen and sophomore guys as they realized that they had idols in their lives that were crushing them. And one guy sticks out, uh, we'll call him Mike. Um, Mike was an engineering student. He was double majoring in mechanical engineering and aerospace engineering. Uh, he was a full ride student, like he was incredibly bright. And his goal after graduation was to work for SpaceX. He wanted to help send people in space and NASA wasn't doing that really at the time. So he thought SpaceX is what I wanna do. So SpaceX doesn't recruit at a lot of places, come to find out, but they recruit at the University of Florida, specifically in this one club called Gator Motorsports. And Gator Motorsports was this club where students would get together and they would build like a small Formula One car. And they would do it from scratch. I think they would be given an engine block at the beginning of a school year. And at the end, they would be erasing a car. It was really incredible what they could do. But Mike got involved in this club purely because he thought, if I do the club, if I sacrifice what's needed, I get SpaceX. I get to go do what I want to do. So he gradually becomes more and more and more involved in the club. And eventually, he becomes the president. And around the time he becomes the president, things start really getting out of hand. Because this is what his life started to look like was every day he would work in the shop, because there's a shop on campus, he'd work in the shop all day. He would eventually skip classes, skip meals, work all day, and he'd work till like 3 a.m. Then he would take an Eno hammock that you're supposed to put between trees, and he would hang it up in the shop, in a machine shop. He would sleep for a couple hours, and he would go right back into working, day in, day out. He neglected his classes, his friends, his family, all for the sake of reaching this goal. So so pretty soon it became clear his involvement had turned into this huge idol and the idol was crushing him, right? Because his grades took a hit, his mental health was struggling, um, his relationships were strained, 
And what God did was he used these things to open his eyes and show him that he was putting his hope and his trust in this idol, in this small Formula One car he was trying to build, right? And God used that to open his eyes, to show him that he was worshiping an idol and to draw him back. And in that, Mike was able to experience God's faithfulness, that God wouldn't let him run off and pursue something other than him, but God would pursue him. God would bring him back. And since we see God's faithfulness just in the way he drives idols out of our lives, this raises the question that I think we all need to ask. And we need to ask if we're on board with that. Are you on board with God killing your idols? And the reason we need to ask ourselves this is because we really love our idols. And part of the reason we love idols is because we love control. We want to be in charge of what we receive. And we think idols allow us to do that. So having God come in and kill our idols means that in this real way, we have to be on board with God being in control of our lives instead of us. All right, so if, if your idol or if our idol is something like work, God showing us that it's an idol might mean that God is showing us that he's the one who provides for us, that he's the one who fulfills us, that he's the one who gives meaning in our lives. And it's in that that he brings us back to himself, right? That God kills our idols to show us that worshiping him, the living and true God, worshiping him, our faithful father, is far greater than worshiping an idol. It's far greater the hope we have in God than the hope we have in an idol. So God is faithful to his people, and we see that in how he destroys our idols. Um, and the last thing we're going to consider is how God is faithful to undeserving people. Right? God is faithful to us even when we are not faithful to him. So in our passage, um, we see that God raised up a judge, and God is with the judge. And in some ways, we can understand that to mean that Israel, in these times of the judge, are repenting. They're turning back to God, right? Repentance is happening. But then look at verse 19. Um, it says, whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or stubborn ways. What I, want, what I want you to see here with me and invite you to see with me is the cycle. Or maybe we could call it the cyclone because it just goes down. Israel does what's evil, right? Then they're given to their enemies. They cry out to God. God sends them a judge to deliver them. Then the judge dies and Israel falls back into their sin even worse than before. Like it kind of goes like this, right? It's like a corkscrew that goes down. This is where like a whiteboard would be nice, but we all know I can't draw very well, so it's good for you, right? It's a rinse and repeat. The cycle continues. This is what happens throughout the whole book of Judges. And what you might be thinking, just of what we've talked about today, is that Israel doesn't deserve this treatment. They don't deserve to be rescued over and over again, especially when they become even more evil than their fathers were. Right? And you would actually be right in thinking that. What Israel deserves is wrath. Right? But instead of wrath, they get blessing. Right? And we call that grace. What Israel receives isn't just not what they deserve, but the blessing of a faithful God continually going after them is far greater than just not getting what they deserve. It's better than what they deserve. 
right? God in his faithfulness to his people continually brings them out of their distress even though it's the last thing they deserve. And this is also our story in Christ. What we deserve for our sin is wrath. But God doesn't just give us, God doesn't just not give us what we deserve, but through Christ, we're adopted into God's family. We become his children. And what God gives us is far greater than just not, than just not receiving wrath. Here, here's my favorite way to explain it. The rising adults have heard this in youth group about a thousand times, so sorry guys, but everyone else hasn't heard it. This is what grace looks like. Let's say you come to my house and you cut my grass and I give you $20. That's not grace, right? That's you getting what you deserve because you cut my grass. And by the way, if you wanna come cut my grass for $20, holler at me after the service, <laughs> right? But that's getting... If I give you $20 to cut my grass, I'm giving you wages, right? You're getting what you deserve. But let's say you come to my house, you knock on the door, I open the door, and you punch me in the face. And then I reach in my pocket and I give you $20. That's grace. Because what you deserve is for me to like call the cops and have a police report filed on you. You don't deserve $20, right? Grace is getting something far greater far more beautiful than what we deserve. And to put it plainly, the grace we receive as Christians means that we get what Jesus deserves and that Jesus actually gets what we deserve. That Jesus came to earth and lived a perfectly sinless life, that he never lied, he never cheated, he never coveted, he never worshiped idols, he never disobeyed God's law. And Jesus did this because we're sinners and because you and I both break God's law every day. And the wages of our sin is death. That's what we deserve. And Jesus took the death we deserve upon himself. And when we trust in him, he covers us with his righteousness. And it's the righteousness that he earned. Right? And what that means for us is that when God sees us, he doesn't see our sin, but he sees the perfect obedience of his son. And Judges ultimately gives us a picture of Christ, that Jesus is the greatest judge who would defeat God's biggest enemies, sin and death, and he would rescue God's people once and for all. And he would do so by laying down his life. And what Jesus gives us is a new cycle. The judge's cycle, the, the spiral out of control, is one where sin gets worse and worse and worse. Right? It's out of control. It shows us the severity of sin. And it also shows us where we would be apart from Christ. But in Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're able to see our sin, to turn away from it in repentance, and know that we can, f and we can fully know we're forgiven in that. And in light of that grace, we can walk in obedience to God's word. And what this looks like, this pattern, this cycle, isn't spinning out of control, but it's a drill bit. And the more and more we see our sin and repent and receive the grace of Jesus, God's grace gets drilled deeper and deeper into our hearts. So since God is faithful to his disobedient children, I think that means we should reflect on his faithfulness and we should rest in it. And the way we can reflect on God's faithfulness really can happen in two different ways. One, we need to reflect on it as we see it in scripture because we see it everywhere in scripture, right? This passage is a great example 
All right, we need to understand that God doesn't leave his people when they're wayward and disobedient. We need to understand that that's exactly how God deals with us. And second, we need to reflect on God's faithfulness in our lives. We need to remind ourselves in, of the ways that we have run from God and how he's brought us back into the fold. And we have to remember that he does that because he's faithful to his promises and because he loves us. And then after we reflect on it, we need to rest in God's faithfulness, right? We need to constantly remind ourselves that we didn't earn this, right? Resting means we don't strive to obey so he will be faithful. Resting means that we just simply receive the grace that we're offered in Jesus and rest in it, knowing that it's ours no matter what, not because of anything we've done, but because of what Jesus has done for us, right? We need to know God is faithful. So if there's one thing uh, I want you to take away from this passage, uh, and we'll land the plane here, this is it, that God is faithful to his people. He's faithful to his people when they've put themselves in messy, sinful situations. He's faithful to his people even when they turn away from him and turn towards idols. He's faithful even when they're not faithful to him. And this is good news for us because if God's faithfulness was up to us, we would be in a lot of trouble, right? We could never earn his love, but in Christ, his love is a free gift, right? Um, this morning, I was looking at the Jesus Storybook Bible, um, and the Jesus Storybook Bible weaves this one line about God's love and really God's faithfulness to his people throughout the whole thing. And it says that God's love is a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And my encouragement to you is this as we go, that God's love for you that we see here, this never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love is yours in Christ. And my encouragement is just to rest in that. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you're faithful, that when we run from you, when we turn away from you, that you bring us back to yourself because you made promises to your people because you're true to your word. God, thank you for the love you have for us in Christ and ask that you would help us walk in that this week. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.